Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Joel. I actually just recently came back from Japan, and I'm so glad to be here today with you all to share this uh, message. So, a bit about my life right now. Currently, I'm doing sort of mission work in Japan, and I'm actually going back soon. And because of this, I actually am so happy to preach today's message because today is sort of my farewell message to a certain extent. And relating to all of this, uh, today we are on this series called The Missional Baton or Baton. In this series, the goal is to examine church history and try to connect the dots and to see where we are today and how the missional baton was passed from one generation to the next generation. And I, in preparation for this message, figured that this message is one of the most difficult messages I've ever preached because the challenge is to make history interesting. And so I know for the past two weeks, there's been a lot of content and sometimes the English can get quite complicated. And so my goal is hopefully that you guys can join with me on this journey. So the early Protestant church, I'll be covering today the 1500s to the 1900s. And since I'm going back to Japan, I thought there's no better place to cover the message by focusing on missions to Asia, from the 1500s to the 1900s. And just to give a bit of clarification, in the 1500s to the 1900s, there are also a lot of events that occur uh, in the early church. You got the Protestant Reformation and all these big movements. But I want to focus and dive deep into this particular topic. And to do so, I want to introduce two people that we will follow with for this journey. William Carey and Hudson Taylor. Now, can I have a show of hands? How many of you have heard about these characters before? Okay, one, two, okay. So, I want to transport you back to the 1800s. During that time, the church recently sort of had a split. You had the Reformation, you got the Catholic Church, and you got the Protestant Church. So one day, William Carey, a cobbler by trade, very passionate about the gospel, he goes to his denomination known as the Particular Baptist. It's a meeting full of pastors, and he tells the people, you know, guys, I have this strong passion that I want to go to India to share the gospel. And he was inspired by the missionaries prior to him, the Moravians, Jonathan Edwards, and a bunch of others. And what happens was, as he was discussing, as he was sharing about his passion, the pastor or one of the key leaders came to him and said this, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. Now, the intensity of the phrase doesn't come across. A better direct translation for today would be, you're a fanatic. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. So what this pastor was saying is, he doesn't need your help. He is God and he can do anything. Why would he want you? And William Carey was shocked because, you know, he has such a heart for the gospel. And this was interesting because for us, the idea of sharing the gospel is so deep-rooted in our culture. Take our favorite passage of all time, Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what happened was this. The particular Baptist, right, had this specific belief. This passage right here is not applicable to them. This passage right here is applicable only to the apostles. And because I'm not an apostle, I have no need to make disciples. And this was the temperature of the church in the 18th century. And so William Carey obviously uh, was appalled by this. And he could not believe that these people just didn't care. And these people would apparently, they just theologize every day, just talking about interesting things. And so William Carey, in response, he wrote this article. It's a 96-page article, and it's called The Enquiry. Uh, uh, the Enquiry. And actually, this, you can read it online. It's open source. You can check it out. And he talks about the culture of the church. He says this, there seems to also be an opinion existing in the mind of some that because the apostles were extraordinary officers and have no proper successors, and because many things which were right for them to do would be utterly unwarrantable for us. And so he responds to this. He goes through exegetically how you cannot do that and treat the passage as not applicable to us. He then walks through history and he traces back the missionary movement from one generation to another. And he was so convicted about this call for the gospel. And you can imagine, for him to do such a thing was blasphemous in the culture of that time. And what we take for granted today is totally different from back then. So he was so passionate and he decided that if nobody would help him, he would start an organization that would support missions. So he and a bunch of younger generation people came together and formed one of the first few Baptist uh, mission organizations in their generation. So this was the culture of the 18th century. So to be a missionary back then, it's very radically different from what we have today. And my goal is to sort of venture you through what was like in the 18th century or 19th century and what it took to become a missionary. In summary, there are three major obstacles if you wanted to become a missionary during that time. The first is geographical distance. The second, cultural barriers. And third, economic provision. And this was what the people was dealing with. So let's talk about geographical distance. Now, for us, from UK to go India and China, it would take approximately 20 hours of flight time. If I checked on Google Flights, it's around 5,000 ringgit, okay? Now, back then, it was an entirely different story. This year is the world map, and, oh, not the world map, but map, and don't worry, guys, this is the only map I'm sharing today, okay? Here is UK, London, and this is India and China, okay? So everybody sort of know where India and China is. This is the Swiss Canal. I want you to guys know that the Swiss Canal is not built yet. So for somebody from UK to travel to India and China, they would have to take the Cape Road, whereby they would pass by South Africa, modern day, and head over to China and India. And this route, according to Hudson Taylor, took him five months to travel. I want to give a bit of context, five months. What takes us 20 hours today 
with a relatively small cost will take them five months of essentially unemployed time. For them to make a decision to go there, it's a huge cost and sacrifice. And not only that, when they went during those times, right, nobody would travel for tourist reasons. Now we can go off, get tourist visa, go into a country. For them, tourism doesn't exist in these countries. They would have to follow the merchants. So they would go on business ships and they would make stop after stop after stop and only arrive in the destination. And then, again, no tourist visa, some of them would have to enter illegally into the country. So that's just one aspect of challenge. Second thing, limited communication. Nowadays, we got WhatsApp, we got Zoom, we got Google Meet, the options are like endless. For them, to send a letter back would take approximately, again, five months. And then, to receive the letter and response would take another five months. So in total, right, the communication that we have today that's almost instantaneous did not exist back then. And lastly of the challenges, during those days, the foreign countries were not stable. China during that time was facing what they call the Red Boxer Rebellion, the Red Turban Rebellion. And for them to enter into the country would be huge risks. Nowadays, if I tell you I'm going to go holiday in Europe area, you guys, you will tell me, Joel, got a Russia-Ukraine war, you better be careful. These guys here knew the risks that they're getting into and they still committed, took it, and all for the gospel. And Hudson Taylor wrote in his diary, the last moments in England before he left to China, he met his mother the last time. They were sitting on the bed and Hudson Taylor was writing that in his knowledge, he acted like that was the last time he met his mother. The mother prayed for him and then he left to China. You know, I just want to think about the comparison and contrast of the price we have to pay today compared to the price they had to pay last time. For them to commit to this kind of work and occupation, if they look at us today, I wonder how many of them would be so upset that we do not take the gospel seriously. So that's the first, geographical distance. Let's go to the second part, cultural barrier. So prior to this sermon, like the prior sermons, we have talked about sharing the gospel to adjacent culture. So basically last time, since the persecution happened, they would then split up. So they would go to neighboring countries. Because it's a neighboring culture, neighboring country, the culture is similar. It would have been easy. But for this, it's different. They would be traveling from UK all the way to China and India. And the cultural difference is huge. There's a language barrier, there's culture barrier, there's even eating, uh, just the entire difference is astounding. And this is where you have some interesting happenings going on. So one day, William Carey freshly landed on India with his family. He was walking down uh, just the coastal area. And then he saw a funeral service happening. So there was a dead man. And what happens was, next to the dead man, the de there was like a bunch of wood and the dead man was on top. Then he saw the female, the wife, laying next to the dead man, but fully alive. So he came and approached the people that were doing the funeral. So he discovered, what happens is, they started a fire underneath when the woman was on top. And this practice is known as sati. And this is a very popular practice 
during the 19th and 18th century. In this particular belief, because the Hindus backslash the people back then believe in reincarnation, so when the husband dies, he needs to go into a higher caste. And in order to do so, the wife who is alive needs to be burnt alongside the husband. So William Carey, imagine 18th century Englishman, proper and prim, goes and sees this. He sees the wife being burnt alongside the husband. And he was horrified. I mean, if any of us would see that, we'd be horrified. He wrote in his diary that the people outside would use a bamboo stick to push the woman into the fire. And the woman would try to get out and the people would ensure that the woman would be burnt alive. And he was utterly shocked at this kind of culture. And not, that, that was not only the prevailing culture. Another thing is, uh, they would practice uh, sort of infant sacrifice. So the Ganges River, what happens is the mothers would throw their babies to offer as a sacrifice to the gods. And so when he arrived in India and he saw these practices, he determined that he would do everything in his power to end, end the practices. During those days, the British people had a non-interference policy. So whatever the Indians they do, it didn't matter to them. So one of the first few things he did to reject this was that he would go around the entire, in his region, and collect statistics of the amount of people that was killed by these sati practices. And he worked with the missionaries and he, had, uh, and he would submit the numbers to the government. But that was not enough. So what happens is he upgraded the strategy. So this is the next part, embracing culture. One of the gifts that William Carey had was that he had the gift of language. By the time he went to India, he knew uh, Hebrew, Latin, Greek, and what happens is he was studying Sanskrit. And one of his special abilities or his gift was to translate the Bible. So here we have some of his orig original documents that he used to translate uh, the Bible. So you can see here, this is all the Sanskrit letters and all the English equivalent. And on the right here, okay, sorry, left. Left here, you have this passage, Matthew 16, and he here has the 12 different translations. You got Malay and Chinese right here. Now, during that time, right, again, there was no Google Translate, no chat GPT. It was all done by hand. And here's the interesting part. During those days, certain dialects in India did not have a written form. So what he would have to do is he needed to create the written form of the language. So he would hear the sound, he would translate to Sanskrit, then only he gets the letters, he then only uh, translated the Bible. He was so good at it that at the end of his lifetime, he translated the Bible into 40 different languages. And the commitment to do that, I think, is pretty insane. But not only that, not only that. So in going back to the sati practices, what happened was he decided to translate the Hindu religious text into English. So he translated the Hindu text into English, and then he did and studied the Hindu text, and he went to the Hindu priest and argued with them that according to your text, sati is not practiced. So he would have formal debates in the Hindu culture, trying to convince them that this is not taught by your Hindu gods. And true enough, 25 years down the road, after battling this, 
and the, he had a bunch of team members that helped him. There was a Hindu reformer that was trying to end this practice. They managed to convince uh, the, in the British government to outlaw the sati practice. And I want you to know, there have been modern day cases, sati practices. But most of the legalization of the discrimination of this particular act started with William Carey and these people. So we talk about William Carey in terms of the battle he had in, terms, in India. Now, for sort of something more closer to home, Hudson Taylor. So Hudson Taylor, uh, you can see on his left is with his English costume. On his right is his Chinese uh, garb, okay? So when he started as a missionary in China, one of the difficulties was that a lot of people call him Guailo, all the Chinese people, Guailo, Guailo, Guailo. And so when he shared the gospel, nobody would listen to him. So he thought, why not this? Let me adopt their costume. So he wore the traditional Chinese costume, and you know the hair like the ponytail? He had that, and he would dress like that, like that and go to the streets to preach the gospel. And when the people in England found out that he was doing that, they were like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? That's so embarrassing. And they rejected him for doing so. But he continued to persevere. And what happens soon enough was that all the other missionaries of that generation started to adopt their particular dressing. So this is more of the missionaries, and you can see all of them were dressed in the Chinese garb. And he wrote in his diary this, that as much as possible, I'm willing to adopt as much Chinese culture just to reach out to the Chinese, as long it did not prevent me from sinning against God. So he first he started eating Chinese food. He learned how to cook. He learned how to relate. He solved and ensured that he became one of them so that he could win them over to Christ. Now, I'm very happy I managed to find this picture, actually. Uh, this one right here, okay? This is 1890s, and this is the picture of him and his family. One of the things about Hudson Taylor is that he liked photography. And this is him and his children. This is the wife, Mariah Taylor, and this is here is the assistant. And this was a family portrait taken together. And I'm just looking at this, and I'm just looking at this guy, like, looks so dead, done already, you know what I'm saying? Now, not only that, we also have this picture, again, from the digital archives. This is a group of Chinese people, and I want to play Where's the Missionary with you. In this picture right here, there's one American missionary. Can you spot the missionary? I'll give you guys 10 seconds. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, okay? The American missionary is right here. Okay, you see? And I just want you to notice like the height difference, right? Okay, and first off, not surprising, you gotta understand, China at the time was starving, it was no poor. I mean, from a nutrition perspective, they did not have the nutrients to grow. Whereas, compared to like the England and people from UK, they had the nutrients, so they were taller. Now, this picture, you might think, wow, that's, that's good and all. But in this time, it was radical. You see, missionaries at this point of time, only men could become a missionary. So, what happens is, when uh, Hudson Taylor was going there, he noticed something. That because he was a guy, he could not actually reach out to the females because culturally, it was deemed unacceptable. So, he started bringing single girls to do mission work. And what happened was, because the girls, uh, they can relate to other girls, the girls were invited to the Chinese people's house, and they were comfortable. 
And so he allowed and gave certain missionary organizations woman head so that they could be effective in terms of reaching the gospel. So here, we got another innovation, sort of, when it comes to reaching the lost. So I just want to just paint this like picture right here. That when it comes to the relationship between the missionary and the culture, it gets quite complicated. There are certain parts where the missionary says, no, I cannot do this. I'm going to fight this particular practice. But then you got another element whereby I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to embrace it so that I can show you the way of Christ. So that is the second one. And lastly, economic provision. I want to correct this stereotype that we might have. I think one common understanding when we have about missionaries is that these people, the only thing they do is trust God. They just pray the entire day and then they trust God. And what happens is they don't work on anything. But I want to point out that this, again, is radically different from the truth. So one of the ways missionaries would live, especially Hudson Taylor, was that he applied wisdom in everything that he did. And he had this single-minded devotion for the cause. So during his early life, when he discovered that he was going to become a missionary, he woke up in the middle of the night one day and realized, if I'm going to become a missionary, right, my life is not so comfortable. I better make my life uncomfortable now so that I can later be a better missionary. That night, he decided to start sleeping on the floor. And not only that, he learned how to reduce his consumption to the bare minimum. So he would only eat bread just to minimize the cost so that when he becomes a missionary, he'll be used to suffering. And not only that, you know, sure, he had faith, but he was wise. One of the things that he was known for was that he was a very, he recorded every single form of expenditure. So one of the results of that was that his mission organization was never in debt and all the money that was given to him was accounted for for the di different stakeholders. Prior to this, right, he was in a mission organization that did not actually keep records and they were constantly in debt. And what happens is he was so fed up with this mission organization, he quit and he made this very famous statement, God's work should be done God's way. And he believed that he would never need to go into debt to do God's work. And what happens is that practice carried on his entire life. So calculative, meticulous, ensuring that he needs the bare minimal to survive, but to be effective for the mission work. And just to give you a bit of more detail, right? He actually wrote the requirement list of what it takes to become a missionary. And certain things in the list, we might actually just bypass that today. So he wrote, the person who must be a missionary must have good digestive power, and good muscular strength, not only in itself, but tending to keep the whole system in healthy and exercise. So he believed, right, if you need to be some form of fitness to go to a different country, because, you know, the food you're going to eat, you're going to be, you know, stomach upset, you need to be ready for that, prepared. Secondly, the candidate should have the ability to learn and to become whatever may be necessary, meaning you need to be able and willing to, like, learn and be educated. You cannot be just, like, don't know anything. Thirdly, cannot believe this, attractiveness and leadership. So he talked about somebody who is charismatic will be effective in the mission field. And the judge of whether somebody is charismatic or not was whether the kids would like him. So if the kids likes you, it's a better chance that he realized that you would become a better missionary. And I want you to know, this requirement also was applied to the females. So 
even though the husband would become a missionary, he needed to ensure that the wife would become and handle sort of the stress. So he talks about the experience whereby the husband may be in good health, but the wife was not in good health. And because of that, the husband suffer because majority of the time is spent taking care of the wife and, he, and what happens is that troubled the mission work. So it's a common misunderstanding to think that, wow, this guy just faith, faith, it all the way. No, calculated, precision, doing everything in their ability to best exemplify the gospel. And here's one little story in terms of how he took his mission seriously. So when he was younger, when he was in UK, he actually fell in love with this girl, this music teacher. And in his diary, he was writing that this girl was like extremely charming, has the most beautiful voice ever. And according to him, he said that if I do not go for this girl, she would be confirmed taken by another person. But here's the problem. The girl did not want to be a missionary. And so Hudson Taylor, obviously so conflicted in his heart. So he prayed to God for two years. He prayed to God, God, change your heart, change your heart, change your heart. But the heart never changed. And so what happened was, he had to come to the point, he had to either choose, hey, am I going to follow God? Or am I going to reject this girl? Uh, yeah, am I going to follow God? Am I going to stay and just win over this girl? And he made his decision that is to live for Christ. And if you read his diary, he was absolutely miserable. Some say, you, you could say that he was depressed, but that was the sacrifice he made to go mission work in China. But honestly, the story has a happy ending. What happens was, in China, he met this girl, a missionary kid, and what happens is they really hit it off. So one day, uh, he wanted to bring the girl and cook for the girl. But he was going through his cupboards and he realized he had no food. So he prayed to God, oh God, you got to supernaturally provide for me. What happens was, on that day, a person came in with a check and he, re- he cooked the food. He then went to the girl. After eating the meal with the girl, he says, okay, I want you to know that I'm a missionary. The life you have with me is not going to be an easy life. There'll be danger. Uh, there may be all, I'll be hungry. Are you willing to sacrifice? And the girl looked at him and said, you know, for the past 20 years, God has taken care of me. Me marrying you won't stop God from continuing to, caring, to, be, to care for me. And so what happens is, even you see, in his mate selection, he needed somebody to sort of support his journey in terms of this missionary work. And what happens is they had five kids and their marriage was exceedingly happy. So you got the applying wisdom expect. Think of it like, you know, Hudson Taylor is a businessman. Okay? But at the end, there's also obviously the element of trusting God. You know, wisdom has its limits. If you apply wisdom to everything, right, at a certain point, right, it will only take you so far. But the last bit that you need to go and overcome requires faith. And this is the element of trusting God. One of the things that Hudson Taylor did was that he started, uh, not started, he had a hospital running that was run by missionaries. This year was the pharmacy, 1890s, again, all Asians, all Chinese people. And this was one of the key ways that he uh, did his work there through medical mission work. And during those times, there were many times whereby the place uh, lacked money and there was no funds to be given out. They couldn't get the materials and ingredients to treat the, the sick. 
And what happens was that he would constantly seek God. And what happens is the money would miraculously come somehow. So one of the examples was George Mueller felt upon God to say, you need to give a check to Hudson Taylor each week. And what happens is Hudson Taylor, no money, received the check and the mission work was sustained. And this like story whereby you have supernatural, miraculous provision from God, it all started with Hudson Taylor that he, he in his entire life, if you read his biography, he had countless stories of he had nothing left, he went through the cupboards, no food, he sit down with a friend and said, guys, we got nothing to eat, we just got to pray and trust God. And then what happens is, bam, the next afternoon, a check arrives, they would have the funds to do so. And during his end of his life, right, he developed such a trust with God that it was almost unparalleled. So once, during his later years, uh, a friend came to see him and what happens is this friend said, guys, your organization has no more money left. Then he looked at Hudson Taylor, and Hudson Taylor was at peace, just reading through the letters, doing his thing, own usual. Then the friend looked at him and said, Hudson Taylor, aren't you stressed? Then Hudson Taylor looked at the friend and said this. He, told, he says an example of analogy. He says this, it little matters to my servant whether I send him to buy a few cash worth of things or the most expensive articles. In either case, he looks to me for the money and brings me he purchases. So if God should place me in serious perplexity, must he not give me enough guidance in positions of great difficulty, much grace, in circumstances of great pressure and trial, much strength, no fear that his resources prove unequal. What he was trying to say is that he was a servant. And no matter what he lacked, he did not need to look into himself. He trusted that God, the master, would provide for everything that he would need. Then the guy continued, but Hudson Taylor, don't you need to have faith? Don't you need to trust God? Don't you need to be abiding in him? Don't you need to be aware that you need to trust him? And then Hudson Taylor said this, yesterday night when I was sleeping, was I unconscious of the fact that I was in your house? Yesterday night, when I was sleeping, was I unaware that I was in your house? No. When I was sleeping, I was still in your house. Same way, I am always in Christ. And he says, we don't need to be conscious of abiding in Christ because He is the one abiding in me. And he had this view it was not so much of how much faith he had because God was with him and God was in him and through him and he can be secure in that. He says this, I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die, his truth, not mine. The resting place, his love, not mine, the tie. And that was the ability of how he had so much faith in God. And these two great men, went on, and what happens is their legacy is still felt today. So for James Hudson Taylor, he fought his fight. 800 people came to know the Lord, and he started the seed and inspired the next generation of missionaries. Until this day, each generation of his descendants still serve God. In fact, now his great-great-great-grandson is actually a missionary to China still. And you can actually uh, Google him. For William Carey, he started a college known as the Serempo College, and it's the third oldest college right now 
in all of India. And his legacy of Bible translation were the building blocks for every subsequent Bible translation in print today. So I want to end with a quote by these people. First, by Hudson Taylor. When I cannot read, when I cannot think, when I cannot even pray, I can trust. God is not looking for men of great faith. He is looking for common men to trust his great faithfulness. And then William Carey with his famous quote, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. You know, we have this particular true line throughout this entire, se- in, through this entire series. We say, ordinary people. I want to add to that phrase today. Ordinary people, but you know what? Extraordinary commitment. These people paid the price where one, none of us could imagine paying the price for. But not only they had extraordinary commitment, they had a great God behind them. And here's the greatest part, that that great God is behind us today. And you know, as we cover the missional baton, what happens is I covered today the 18th and 19th century. Those were the battles they faced. Those were the obstacles and challenges. And Hudson Taylor and William Carey took it up and they ran their race and they passed on the baton. The next generation, David Livingstone, so on and so forth. And now today, we receive that baton. You know, the question we have today is, are we willing to take on the baton and trust God as we fight these battles so that we can bring the gospel and we can use it to reach the world? And my hope today, as you hear this message, is to maybe gain a greater appreciation for all the people who have gone before us, all these people who fought their battles, gives you context in terms of the battles we have today. I pray that we can seek God. Maybe just think, what is something I can sacrifice for the gospel today? Let's pray. Every head bow, every eye close. Father Lord, I'm grateful, God, for all the people that has gone before us. The battles they fought, the obstacles they faced. Father Lord, you use imperfect people to perform your perfect will. I pray, O God, that in our lives, may we take up that baton and use it to pursue you and be the light in this dark world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.